The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think and feel and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights of the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. And we've got a great show for you today on Guys Guys Radio. I'm so excited. It's the first of a two-part interview with a man who's been considered by many as the GOAT, the world's greatest interviewer. His name is Lawrence Grobel. First of all, he's a terrific guy. He's a guy's guy, and he's very generous, and he was very gracious with me throughout this entire interview process. I really like him, and I love his work, and I love his writing. He's written 29 books, novels, poetry books, short stories, and also a couple of books on interviewing. Um, One is The Art of the Interview. That's probably his seminal book, Lessons from the Master of the Craft. He's also written uh, other books on interviewing, and also books that include his long-form interviews with a couple of big stars, Truman Capote, Marlon Brando, Al Pacino. So he's got books on all of those and many more. As I mentioned, 29 books. And we're going to get into uh, his life and a lot of tips about, excuse me, interviewing, how you make contact, how you create a rapport, when do you ask the tough questions. So much, so much to learn. So for all you podcasters out there, and I know there's more and more uh, coming, Even though you're my competition in some ways, I'm happy to bring you the world's greatest interview, the GOAT, Lawrence Grobel to Guys Guys Radio. So can't wait to get into that. Real quick, because uh, we're chock-a-block on time today, because really wall-to-wall with Lawrence, and we've got enough material that we're going to do a part two, which I can't wait for either. But you know, I've been talking about the uh, 12 kind of healthy practices that I've uh, either developed or dialed up during COVID. So I'm on number five today, and it's about getting more rest, more sleep, and really taking care of your body. I don't have to get into what the benefits are of that. You all know that. But the fact of the matter is 70 million Americans suffer from insomnia, and it's a real problem. So what do I do to uh, address that? You know, as you get older, sometimes it's harder to sleep. You got a lot of monkey chatter on the mind, and uh, it's, it's just hard to get rest. But what I do is I try to go to bed a little bit earlier, especially since I moved to California. I'm, I'm up early. I'm up earlier, an hour earlier. I go to bed probably two hours earlier. I do my best to uh, have a routine where I go to bed around the same time and I get up at the same time. That really helps. And also I've added, which I've talked about in previous shows, deep breathing exercises and meditation. And it's really helped my ability to sleep, particularly the deep breathing, because there's so many of us have short shortness of breath. And as you get older, you really want to open things up and let things out and open things up and let them out. So I would suggest you all Google ways of getting a better rest, meditation, deep breathing exercises, and take it from there because obviously the benefits of getting more rest are, are numerous. 
you know, you're going to regenerate the cells in your body. You're going to feel better. You're going to be more centered. You're going to be less cranky and you're going to be healthier. So Guys Guys Radio, our special guest, Lawrence Grobel. Let's get into it right now. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, Guys Guys Radio, I have a very, very special guest, particularly for myself, your host, Robert Ranney of Guys Guys Radio, because I am interviewing somebody no- known as the interviewer's interviewer. He's, uh, he's done over 36 interviews for Playboy magazine, those in-depth biographical interviews with people like Brando, Pacino, uh, Streisand, so, so many others, so many Oscar-winning actors, Nobel laureates, Pulitzer Prize winners, sports figures, and so many who really didn't want to be interviewed. Um, he's the author of 29 books, including the seminal book, The Art of the Interview, which I'm reading now, and it is, it is fantastic, and it's a must-read for any podcasters out there listening to the show, because you'll learn a lot from the master. He's also a poet, screenwriter, novelist, teacher at UCLA. He was in the Peace Corps. He's just an amazing guy. He's from New York City, and he's been called the Mozart of interviews by none other than Joyce Carol Oates. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Larry Grobel. Thank you, Guy. Nice to uh, be here. And um, I say Guy, but (laughs) But, um, I'll correct you really quickly. Um, It's it's interesting that you said I'm from New York City because also in New York. Uh, I, I am originally from New York, okay. but I've, I've lived outside of New York since uh, I was 17 years old. So in a sense, I'm, you know, I, I, but but I do notice that in the back of my Houston book, the, the latest version, they claim that that's where I live. <laughs> well, you're a New Yorker, though. I can tell. I am a New Yorker. <laughs> because, you know, I spent the last 30 years there before moving to Southern California. And you can pick off a New Yorker every time if you're from New York, right? I mean, it's just something in the, the core the of the individual. It's also the way we say orange and uh, uh, <laughs> the, the, the difference between Mary, Mary, and Mary. When I came to Los Angeles, when I went to school, it was, they say Mary, Mary, Mary. All three are the same word. That's <laughs> and true. New York is distinguished. Let's start talking about the process a little bit. You started out selling encyclopedias. And as we touched on briefly before we got on the air, um, I had to do uh, sell something called photo promotion, where you basically had to cold call people at a mall. And it really taught me a lot about people, who they are, who to talk to, how to get in the door in terms of a conversation with them. You had to go door to door with colliers. And it seemed like it was a really important time in your life in terms of kind of uh, triggering your ability to be able to be confident and talk to anybody. Could you let us know a little bit about that, Larry, and what you learned? Well, it, it was interesting. I, w- I was very young. I was uh, 17 years old, I think, when I when I got uh, a friend of mine started working uh, for Collier's Encyclopedia, selling these encyclopedias. And he said, you know, you should really try it. You can make 87.50 for each sale you made. And at that time, that was a lot of money. And um, you, you know, you, you went out in a crew of four or five people and you're uh, the guy who drove you there. He would put you out in different places. So I, I it, the University of Chicago t- taught you how to do this. The, it's a psychological thing to, to sell encyclopedias because you're taught that you are not selling encyclopedias. You are giving them away for free. What you're doing is anybody who would take an encyclopedia, though, You'd want to make sure they'd want to update it each year. So what you're doing is you're selling them the the update. You're selling them the yearbook every year for 10 years. 
So in the end, it's not a bad deal. I mean, it was, uh, you know, maybe $80 for the yearbook or 75, something like that. So for 10 years, you're, you're selling them that. But it's not easy getting in the door for somebody. And you had to always have the, the, the husband and the wife there together. And you couldn't sell one or the other. And I was put in Bedford Stuyvesant, some of the some of the, some of the more difficult areas of uh, Queens and, and and New York and and okay. and um, for the first three days I couldn't get into a door. I'd knock on a door. I'd have that tie, I, a jacket and a tie on. I'd have my attaché case. I'd knock on a door. Couldn't get in. So what, they retrained me by having me go out with another guy. And I went out with a guy who who did this. And what he did is he would he would take his uh, attaché case. And hide it behind a bush, and he would knock on the door, and he would just say, you know, he would make something up to get in the house, you know. And, and I saw how he did it. And I said, "Wow, okay." So I learned, and basically, I would knock on people's door. I say, uh, "I'm not selling you anything. I'm here to know to see if you have uh, certain items in your refrigerator." And I'd always say, <laughs> "Ice cream. Do you have ice cream in your freezer?" Yes. Okay. <laughs> if if I can see that, if you can show me the ice cream, I can give you a quarter or whatever it was. So they would let me in. I, they showed me their ice cream. And then I'd look around the house and I'd say, actually, I'm not here for the ice cream. Here's a quarter anyway. But, you know, I'm not here for the ice cream. I'm here uh, because I'm looking for only two people in your neighborhood that we could give out a free encyclopedia. And I see by the Norman Rockwell you know, print that you have up on your wall, pasted with a scotch tape, where you have this, that you are an educated person and you and I, and I you would go on and on. Right. And And then I also learned... And all the time that you you would if I could move a, a, a piece of their furniture uh, from the kitchen, let's say a chair. I said I have a bad back. Do you mind if I uh, sit, you know, borrow this? And I'd go in the kitchen, take the chair myself, put it in the living room, and then I'm talking to them. What happens is you've changed the environment of their own house. In the in the first five minutes you walked in, you have been taking control of their house in a sense. I didn't realize what I, you know, what this was going to mean in, later on in my life. But um, all of these little things that you learn, how to talk to people, how to convince them, how to uh, uh, manipulate conversations, really, but also how to listen to you know, what they what they need, um, all came in very handy when I started interviewing people, because uh, especially celebrities, because celebrities have been interviewed by so many different kinds of people that I needed to distinguish myself from others. And um, I, I found that I was able to do that. And I think I, I give a great deal of early credit to my, 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 I think it was three weeks that I sold encyclopedias before uh, uh, I stopped doing it. It's amazing. Imagine today, the difference between back then and today. Knocking you know, on doors. You, you, you <laughs> ring the doorbell now and everybody like Sebastian Maniscalco says, you, they all die for cover. Who's yeah. there? You know, yeah. you know, exactly. they come in to get us. But um, so you've been interviewing, as you mentioned, celebrities and so you interview people who don't want to necessarily, they're not really trying to sell something. They don't really want to be interviewed, yet you manage to get them, land them, get comfortable with them, and have them really open up to you. Um, right. you what's the magic there? How do you do it? It's very hard to, to be able to tell other people how to do something. Because what I noticed is that I, know, I knew a few other people who did Playboy interviews. They did them very different than I did. Some of them were very nervous people. And so you felt sorry for them and you, you talked to them because of to calm them down. Others uh, went in with the, I had a, one friend of mine. He used to always bring his wife along, you know, when, and he did those kinds of things. And so she would be able to, you know, get friendly with them. I don't know. I could never conceive doing that either. What I think when I boil it down to 
you know, first preparation, you've got to be totally prepared when, when you're dealing with somebody. You have to show them that you're more aware of what of their past than even they remember. And and when you show that, they take they can appreciate it. They can see that you've done your homework. That then it's not gonna, you know, you don't want to bore them. You want to make them, you know. Uh, you want them to see that in the next couple of hours or a couple of days, you they will be challenged. They will be stimulated. Um, and uh, hopefully, you know, they will get to like you as well. Um, you know, I'm not there to attack anybody. I'm there to, to get to know somebody. So, um, you know, a lot of it has to do just with your personality. The fact is, is that I have had a lot of experience outside of just uh, going to college and whatever. I, by being in the Peace Corps for three years, by traveling for a year after I left the Peace Corps around the world, you know, and going to many countries and all the continents, um, I, it, it's given me stories to tell. So when, you know, people like to hear those kinds of things. When I finally got to somebody like Marlon Brando, everybody after that wanted to see me because I interviewed him. You know, they wanted stories about him so that, you know, I became the guy who, who did that. Um, but, uh, you know, for different reasons, I, I guess I got, I, I, I got a reputation that, um, I was fair. Uh, sometimes my reputation hurt me because, uh, Alfred Hitchcock in the end and, and Leonard Bernstein and, um, uh, Fred Astaire, uh, ended up canceling on me at the last minute after looking into, you know, hearing that I, I, I go deeply, let's say, you know. Some people have called me a can opener, <laughs> but, okay. um, but, you know, I, I don't try to, I don't try to, uh, trick anybody. I don't try to, I, I don't play gotcha journalism. I basically try to talk about what your life has been. What I'm trying to do in my interviews is go a little bit deeper. So okay. I have read everything I can. So when I get to you, um, I know what you said in the New York Times, or I know what you said in the, in certain books or certain publications, and so I'm going to go ask you further questions about those things. So um, you know, so people who read these interviews will get something new out of them. That to gotcha. me is important. Okay, just for context for our listeners, Larry has interviewed. I, I started writing down all the names, and I filled up a sheet of paper and had to turn it over. Brando, Pacino, Streisand, Halle Berry, Elliot Gould, Keith Sutherland. Bobby Knight, Jesse Venturia, Anthony Kiedis of the Chili Peppers, Nicole Kidman, Robert Mitchum, Mitchum Dolly Parton, Pavarotti, Robert Evans, Bruce Willis, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'll, st I'll, I'll get back to the rest of them throughout our interview here. Um, you describe an interview as not being a series of asking questions and getting answers. You talk about it as a, as a process, as a dance, as a massage. Could you elaborate a little bit on that, Larry? Well, I always thought that... that uh... You know, to, to interview someone, I, I think you have to have a certain kind of personality yourself. If you are an A-type person with a very large ego, and I have a number of friends who are like this, they can never do interviews because they they want to be interviewed. You know, there are people who want to be on one side of the microphone or someone there on the other. Um, I prefer the control, you know, of a writer than I do of wanting to be out there, you know, talking about myself a, a great deal so this is a little bit you know lately i've been doing these kinds of things but what can you do you know, if you've done one thing you, you, you end up doing the other um but i i do see the interview as, as kind of like a flirtation i see it as you know definitely like a you know kind of a dance you know that you know or as a ping pong you know like a lolita thing you know uh, where you're playing ping pong and 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 and, and getting to know somebody that way and i've often 
done that. I've often played basketball with some of my people. I've, you know, when I went to see JP Dunleavy, he had a, he had a ping pong table. I loved it. I played with him. Um, but it's, it's any of those things, you know, if somebody smokes cigars and they offer you a cigar, you know, whether you smoke it or not say yes, you know, you, right. you, you know, you just light it up. You don't have to, you know, cough all the time. But I think what you want to do is, is just somehow relate in whatever way you can to what this person is doing. You never know when you get into, when you open a, someone opens a door for you, if there's going to be someone else behind that door. In other words, when I was with Barbara Walters, she had a publicist there who insisted on being in the interview. Charlton Heston did the same thing. I never like people around when I talk. I, I get self-conscious of other people, and I don't. I, I'm trying to concentrate on just one person. And I often ask them. With Halle Berry, when I, I I've seen her a few times. One time for, for Playboy, I went up to um, Canada, and uh, she, you know I, I was in Vancouver, and I, I I had to go up to this place where she's staying, and her publicist is, is there. I said, "You," I, I said, "I can see you. I don't want to see you." And, and, and so Holly asked her to leave. So she went into, into the stairwell, sat on the steps. Uh, but listen, so every time I would bring up a subject that she didn't want, she'd come, no, 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 you can't talk about that. And I, you know, so you sort of argue with, with the publicist more. They're the, more bigger, the bigger problem um, oftentimes. But, you know, I, I compare, I say you have to be like a psychologist. You know, uh, you have to be like a playwright. You know, you, you, have to un, you have to be able to organize an interview. So it's not just doing the interview. Because some of the interviews I did, I had 2,000 pages. Imagine with Pacino, my first interview with him, I had 2,000 pages of transcript. How do you turn that into 100 pages of an interview that will end up being 80 pages that, you know, of use when they publish it? Um, so I had to learn how to do that. You know, and a lot of it was like I, I had to index stuff. Um, uh, you know, so if he talked about his mother... On, you know, on pages 5, 25, 50, and 150, I would get those pages, just work on those, and make a good paragraph out of all the things he said. So, so yes, I am massaging that interview. I am making, you know, make, it's, my, it's raw clay to me, and I'm making it into a sculpture. Um, and there are journalists who'd say, you can't do that. You have to write, give the exact transcript. Well, how do you do a 2,000-page transcript? It's impossible, you know, even in a book form, it's too long. So, you know, there is editing involved, and that's a, a very key part of the interview format. Now, even in, with, with podcasts, if it's just straight, if it's talk straight into, you know, uh, the air, then it's exactly how it's happening. But oftentimes what's happening is there's editing going on as well there, too. You want to take out the boring stuff because, of, you know, we're all boring for 80% of our time, you know, and, and we all speak with uh, us and those and, you know, eh, eh, you know and, and we stutter. Uh, you want to take that out if you can. So you want to make it as smooth as possible and you want to make it look like it's one conversation. So there are all sorts of challenges I found in, in, in doing an interview that involved a lot of different types of writing, a lot of different types of thinking. Um, and uh, the more I did it, I started doing it in, with Newsday and I was doing these 3000 word interviews with, you know, Lucille Ball or, you know, uh, Linus Pauling or Henry Moore or whoever it would be, uh, Ray Bradbury. But, you know, I always thought, you know, once I started doing those things, I said, God, what if I had another couple of hours? What if I could have uh, two or three days? How would that work? You know, how deep can you go with this form? And the only form I found was Playboy, you know, at that time, you know, that gave you that kind of Q&A that allowed you, you know, to do 20,000, 30,000 word interviews. So that was a goal of mine was to see how I could do that. And then it expanded into book form, which is what I did with James Michener or, or uh, you know, uh, Capote 
or or Brando or Al Pacino. I took a lot of the, you know, a lot of these interviews. I try to make them into a see how far I could go with it. And you know, so it's it's a it's an it's a form that just fascinated me. I didn't know when I first thought oh, I only wanted to write novels. That was my whole goal. The novelist was my big hero, and I've written a few myself. But you know. Uh, mainly I'm known for my interviews because I've done them for so many years and for so many different publications, but it's, it's to me, everyone is different. Everyone is fascinating. Marlon Brando said to me, how can you keep it? it how can you interview actors? He says, Hey, you know, they're, they're all the same. Don't they get bored? Don't you get bored? And I said, if I got bored, I wouldn't be doing it. But I found that each actor was different, you know, and that's, that was what was interesting. And you can, everybody is different. And the challenge of the interviewer is to get to that difference, is to make them stand out and be unique by themselves. Uh, and where is that? And where, you know, how do you find that? Okay, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio is the interviewer, the Mozart of interviewing, Larry Grobel. Uh, we're talking about his career and some tips on how to interview. And I'm I'm nervous myself during the process, but that's okay. I'm cool. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> um, was there an interview that uh, or something that happened along the way that convinced you that you could do be a great interviewer? One incident. Um, I guess it, I think it might have been the persistence with Barbara Streisand. Because all the other interviews I did along the way, you know, were a couple hours long, three or four, you know, even in Ghana, I did a, with a famous artist uh, uh, there. And, you know, I, so I got to, I, I, I did, I started doing that as a form, but it was 30, 40 questions. Streisand, though, was a whole different ball game, And she didn't want to do it for, for a year and a half or something. She finally agrees to this interview. And then she wants control. And she, she, she had given me, uh, when I got to her house after finally getting the okay to do this with her, she she had she handed me a lawyer a legal letter with my name on it as, as if I wrote it, and it basically said uh, that she will uh, be able to see the interview when it's done. She will have get back all the tapes that I do with her. They wish it'll be her her ownership, and uh, and she can change anything she wants. And if she decides to cancel it in the end, she can. And I looked at that and I said, Barbara, I can't sign this. And she said, well, you have to. Everybody signs it when they, you know, before I do anything. I said, well, I'm not everybody, number one. And number two is I'm not a secretary. I'm not your secretary. I said, if you want to do this interview, it has to be clean. It has to be something that when I go, if I talk about it, I can say it's an honest interview. You're trying to make it dishonest. So we fought over that. And her, her lawyer called, her, pub, her manager called while I was there, and her, her boyfriend to John Peters at the time, did he sign? Did he sign? Did he sign? And I didn't sign anything. And she finally agreed to do it. And once we started doing it, did it for for about eight or nine months. You know, I would go see her. We would have fights. We would argue over things. Then uh, at one point, John Peters calls me up and says, uh, "Can I come to his office?" I go to his office. What do you want? He says, "I can't stand it anymore. I can't stand this interview you're doing with her. Every time you you ask her questions, and then I have to I have to uh, uh, fight with her, or or you make me feel uncomfortable." She's talking about Ryan O'Neill uh, uh, urinating in the toilet that I'm using right now. I don't want to hear this stuff. And he, he says, I'll make you a deal. I want, I'll, what are you getting paid for this? I'll double what you're pay, getting paid. And uh, I'll let, I'll write a, a note that you will write her book one day and that you're her friend and all. And I just said, John, I said, don't keep Barbara away from me. I said, if she wants me to stop this, I'll stop it. But, uh, but she has to tell me, not you. 
And that went on. Those, it was those kinds of things that I wrote about in my memoir, actually. I, I, I did a whole chapter about what happened behind the scenes of that interview. So I think what happened there is I, 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 Playboy kept after me, too. Where is this thing? Where is this thing? I said, you'll get it when I'm finished. And I had, and you know, that was my first Playboy interview. And yet I'm, I'm, I'm holding off the editors. I'm dealing with her. I'm dealing with her, her people. And I, and I wouldn't let her see the material. We fought all the time. But in the end, I, I did an interview that, you know, uh, everyone seemed to have respected. And uh, it led to Playboy giving me the, the Marlon Brando assignment. Now I was a young guy then. I had only done three interviews by then for them, wow. and um, and and yet I get the biggest assignment that Playboy probably ever gave when it came to anyone in the entertainment business. Why did they choose me? Well, number one is because I spent all these months with Streisand and never got paid until I g- gave it to them in the end. I got her to be on the cover. She was the first celebrity on the cover of Playboy, and Hefner did not want her on the cover. So I had huge battles that I had to deal with to get her on the, you know, because she was the one who wanted to be on the cover. She asked for it. And so there was all kinds of things that went on behind the scenes, but it taught me, in a, you know, that I can do this. I can deal with these people. I can deal with the very famous. I can deal with the behind the scenes. I can deal with the lawyers. I can deal with the publicists. Uh, and in the end, I can I can give you the results that that seem to you know be noticed. And so that's what happened. And then when I did Brando, I was very nervous. You think you're nervous talking to me? <laughs> Imagine talking to Marlon Brando on his island, and you have no recourse to go anywhere. You can't if you, if your machinery breaks down, you can't get buy a new machine. If you don't have enough tape, if it gets wet, you know. I mean, you got to deal with so many thoughts when you're going to live to be on an island with somebody and you don't know for how long um so that all you know it taught me as well you know how do you deal with somebody like that so reclusive and again a man who wanted control in the end he came to my house and he asked me can i come uh, can i see the interview can i see your transcripts i said no i can't do that I mean, it was like, um, you know, you're dealing with people, but you also have to be very strong about your own sense. And I always had a great sense about what I was doing. I thought that the interview is, is an art form, not just a, a craft, and that you can, you, you can, you know, because I saw, I, I always treat things from being a, from a novelist point of view, I would say, you know, I've always thought of, my, thought of myself as a writer, not as a journalist, not as an interviewer, but as a writer going in to talk to somebody and trying to get as deep as I can. So I, I guess the answer would be that the Streisand one was pretty important in that regard. And Brando was sort of what topped it off, that I was able to pull that one off. As a, a, somebody who is a novelist and thinks like a novelist, when you're constructing your interviews in uh, the editing stage, are you thinking about the classic storytelling template? You know, what does the main character want? Why can't he get it? You know, a series of escalating challenges and then a climax. I know you're very focused on the beginning and the end, but how do you weave in the whole novel storytelling practice well you know again well i try i try and the example i give in my book and the art of the interview is i is is the bobby knight interview because i felt that's that's like a three-act play you know it opens you know with 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 us talking but he gets very mad at me that you know right in the beginning he wants to kick me out you're not alone you're not alone right But, but then but then I sort of calm him down and then we start talking and I, you know, and then you started getting what he has to say. And then it, it, it builds up to another crescendo where he gets angry again and then it calms down again. And then he gets mad and he's, he's throwing me out of the car and he punches me and we're going to, it's a crazy interview, but you know, and then finally it's like the denouement is when he, when, when uh, he, he didn't want, 
he didn't want me to be in the car anymore. And this other guy who was with us, it was also a coach at the ending, and, you know, saying, uh, we have a very bad situation here. So why don't I drive Larry home or Larry, you drive Bob Knight's car uh, alone and I'll drive Bob back. And this is with three hours away from his home. And so Knight finally said, no, get in the car, I'll drive. And so, you know, I, I had to look at my situation and I was, I was afraid for my, 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 bodily harm but with this guy he's six foot five he weighs 280 pounds he's a big man he's an and he's a crazy kind of guy he's kind of like donald trump by the way i say the closest tr example to trump is bob knight as far as i'm concerned and but i remember going into the car late at night and i said to him i put out my hand i said take my hand coach and he looked at me like vermin you know the, the journalist <laughs> yeah, i'm not touching this guy i said just take my hand and and finally he did. And I held his hand, you know, like in a handshake and I gripped it hard and he had a big hand. And I said, look, <laughs> I'm not out to get you. I said, I'm not here to, you know, to do any to do harm to you. I said, what you are a controversial man. You've made controversial statements. You've done your actions have been controversial. Some of these are true. Some of them are not. I'm going to give I'm trying to give you a chance to tell your story the way you see it. And I'm sorry if I've offended you. But let's be careful on our way home. Let's drive safely to get home, you know. And then he just opened up. He just, you know, it's like, you don't understand. He said, they broke my heart. They took my heart out, you know, when they fired me. And, and he went into this whole thing. And I just, you know, in the meantime, I didn't have my tape recorder on at that time because he had wanted to destroy my tapes. So I had them in the back seat. And he saw my head is my mind is like going crazy because I have to remember everything he's saying because this is a very important moment for this interview. And he said, okay, you want to get your, get your tape recorder? I said, I don't want you to destroy it. He says, I won't. Okay, so I got it. And we taped all that. Well, that's your ending, you know? I mean, this after this emotional outburst. So, yeah, it, it was constructed that way. I did the same thing with the, the Henry Winkler. The first, play, the first Playboy interview I had published was with Winkler. The first one I did was Streisand, but that kept going. But with Winkler... Here was a guy who was the funds, you know, on happy days. Right. And, and, and he, he went to Yale and, he, you know, he did little things here and there. And then he gets on this show and he wasn't even a main character. He was a small character, but he was so popular that they turned him into a big character. And he became so big that he was making at that time more money per show than any actor ever made. I buy $50,000 a show, whatever it was. And. And then he goes to Mardi Gras, you know, and he's the king of Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and he's throwing the Dublins out and all that stuff. And I saw oh, the arc of this thing. I saw that, you you know, the, the, how you take him through his life story to becoming this giant star and to having George E. Scott come up to him and say, enjoy this because you will never have it again. You know, in other words, you're never going to be this big again. But, you know, you don't know that when you're that big, right? And then ending with him, you know, throwing out, being the king of Mardi Gras. I thought, there's my, you know, the, the arc of this thing. Well, when Playboy changed, Playboy uh, cut out a lot of the stuff that I had carefully put in because they didn't see it the way I saw it. And I, I, when I got back with the, their edit, I said, no, no, it's got to go this way. It's got to go that way. And I remember the editor, the, uh, my editor said to me, you know, I never saw an interview that way, th in that way. And this is the guy who was the editor of the Playboy interview. And I said, seriously? I said, that's the way I see a structure for this thing. And he agreed with me, you know. And so I did try to structure my interviews. But it was more subconscious than conscious a lot of the times. You know, I basically... Once you start getting the, you know, start working on the interview, once you got your opening, it, 
it'll flow after that. What does that person say? If what does he if he mentions something about his early life, you got to go find the material about his early life for the next question, and you move it along that way. So it looks like a conversation. And if it's a good interview, it'll also have some kind of arc to it. Again, my special guest, Larry Grobel, world's greatest interviewer. Let me throw out a couple more names of folks he's interviewed. Goldie Hawn, Harvey Keitel, Mae West, Ava Gardner, Jerry Lewis, George C. Scott, Elizabeth Hurley. Was Mae West, was she as a wink-wink during your uh, interview as she came across on screen? And that was your first big celebrity, right? Yeah, she was. Mae West, you know, when I went to see Mae West... Uh, first of all, that was the, the first assignment that, that, that got it all going. It was when I got to Los Angeles. I left New York. I was writing for Newsday. I was doing profiles. They came up with this idea of doing household names, interviews with household names. And they said, How, we'd like you to do Mae West. I said, is she still alive? <laughs> I had no idea. They said, and, and, then, and they said, how do we know? You're the one, how do I get to it? He says, you're the one in Hollywood. You'll have to find her. So I, I, I found her. She had Paramount. I talked to publicists. I got to see her. And I remember going, I stopped at a flower shop on my way to her place and i i bought her fla- flowers and the flower shop guy says what are the i said oh, these are for may west he goes oh that may west li- doesn't like these kind of flowers she likes these kind i said okay great <laughs> so the guy knew right? i got the right flowers they were much more expensive by the way and then um you know and when i got there i take you know she came out and she had she was small she was like dolly parton very you know very small woman in a sense but when you have the head the, the hair and then the the heels, you know, you, you gain eight inches or so. Anyway, so I got there and I take out my tape recorder. She goes, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Can't use the tape recorder. I got my first play, <laughs> my first interview like this. And I get, she says, I can't use it. And I was like, what? what? And she says, someone once did tape recorded her and they made it into a record. But she had that very famous voice and they turned it. So I said, look. I'll, I'll I'll put it. I'll write you a note that I won't do that. I won't do it. And then she says, "No, no, you can't use it." I said, "Ah." Oh. So I took out. Luckily, I had a pad with me. Luckily, she talked very slowly, and uh, also that she had her boyfriend, who was a, a muscle guy there. You know, one of her bodyguards, and and that's the one of the few cases I was glad he was around because I would bring up things to her, and she would talk, and you know, yes, that happened or whatever, and then the guy would say. May you may you told a better story than that, and he would he'd egg her on, and then she would go into it. And I'm writing like crazy as I can do it. What I remember very strongly is I had to go to the bathroom about two and a, two hours into this interview. I had to go pee, and I I wasn't going to get up unless she got up, you know. And she had great stamina, so for three or four hours she didn't move, and then you know and just and just told her thing. But that was a uh, you know it was a difficult interview in the in the regards that I I couldn't tape record it but but and ever since then i've taped every single thing i've ever done but i've run into that situation with ray stark and i've run into it with with uh, george e scott where they uh, and jerry lewis where they didn't want to tape and then when they do they they tape their own tape you know they may, they have their own tape recorder going because they want to make sure you don't screw around with them and that's fine with me because I, I i don't Two, two part question, Larry. One, when you first meet somebody that you're going to interview, how do you establish a quick connection with them? And secondly, some of these interviews that you did over the years, Brando, Pacino, Streisand, they went over periods and periods of interviews. How do you maintain the, the flow from each segment of those interviews? Well, uh, you know, the, the, your first part of the question is, is, you know, how do you how do you establish your rapport basically yes and you either do or you don't 
I did not do it. I failed with Robert Mitchum when I first met him. Now later on, I saw him from my Houston book, and I saw. But but when I went to see him, he was a he's a he's an anti-Semitic man who made anti-Semitic statements who offended me a number of ways, and I actually got up and left after a while because that was just it just wasn't working. Sure. So sometimes you have to have your you know you have to have a, your own sense of self basically. Um, but I find that the 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 first two minutes of any interview is the most important. You know because what happens is. That's when the door opens and you're going to, or, or, you know, they come down the steps or whatever it is. Like with Lucille Ball, I remember she, I saw her legs first when you're in the house. And it's how you, how you greet them, how you look at them, how you smile, how, you know, I, you know, and the eye contact you make. You're either going to, they're either going to see that, yes, this guy's intelligent or this guy's friendly or this guy's prepared or whatever it is that I'm trying to show. Um, and hopefully all three, you know, that, that I, you know, that I'm, I'm ready to do this. Um, and I'm, and, and I'm basically a friendly person. I have stories to tell. Um, sometimes uh, I might be able to say right up front and drop a name by somebody. Oh, Al Pacino told, wanted me to tell, say hello to you, blah, blah, blah. You know, Oh, you know, Al, yeah. Al, we became friends after we met. that kind of thing that could happen. But, you know, you do drop names at times and you do, and, and other times you don't. Ray Bradbury was not interested in anybody but himself, you know, and he was a very good interview. But if you started going off a, a story on your own, he didn't care. His eyes went blank and you'd see that. So you'd go back to, you know, just keep it to him. Keep it all on him. People like Brando took me three days before he let me tape him. So for those three days, I told him my stories and he would laugh. He would he got a kick out of that. So, you know, you just don't know. But that's why I really think that uh, it's like a tabla rosa. Every time you go in, you don't whatever you're expecting, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be something different. You know, Chris, Chris Walken uh, had a rented house. He he liked to, he wanted to do the interview standing up in the kitchen. He liked to cook, so he was most ha happy doing that. He would make me a coffee, and we would sit there, you know, and stand and talk. I wasn't prepared to stand the whole time, right, and look at my notes and do. But I did, you know, because that made him comfortable. So you really have to, to, you know, as I said, being like a chameleon, you have to mold yourself to the other person. And let's see, the second part of the question was how do you continuity? Continuity. Well, you know, look, when I first went to see James Michener, I had prepared. Five or six hundred questions. Now, if I prepare that many questions, I'm probably going to ask three times as many, right? So that's good. so. Anyway, because he, he he wrote about all the, the all these things about all these countries, all the you know the things from the dinosaur up. He had a lot of knowledge. I like I wanted to feed into that knowledge and see what you know where I can go with it. So when I went to Florida, and he he says uh, we go into his little office, and he showed you know he had a desk was a, a door. He always just had a door as his desk. And then he had two filing small, two, two drawers filing cabinets underneath it and, his, and a chair, a rocking chair. So he, he told me to sit in his rocking chair, right? And he sat in the other chair and I, and it's okay. So I, he said, well, I think we can do this tomorrow. I met him the, the night before we started talking and he said, all right, come tomorrow at eight o'clock and we'll, you know, and uh, we'll finish up by, you know, and, and it'll be good to talk to you. And I said, I don't think we can do this in one day, Mr. Michener. I say, I said, I, I'm very prepared for this. And I've made it written a lot of questions. And he just said, well, let's just see how it goes. So I went to see him at eight in the morning. We took, we talked till noon. We went for lunch, came back, talked till five. So we talked about eight hours. And then he said, uh, okay, come back tomorrow at eight. I went back tomorrow at eight. And then we did it for eight more hours. Then the next day, then the next day, five days, eight hours each. That's 40 hours of tape right there. Amazing, right? So 
Um, but what was the continuity? Well, it was picking up from where we left off. You know what I mean? It was basically, okay, we're stopping because we're tired. Most people don't talk the way he, you know, he was willing to go for that, that long. Most people will go for two hours, three hours, and then they get a little tired and that's fine. And then I say, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. But I just, you know, if we're, if we're talking about your childhood and we say, well, why don't we stop here? It's a good stopping point. Fine. Then we'll pick it up tomorrow. So to me, the continuity was never hard. It's just it, the hardest part with someone like Streisand was regaining her trust. Every single time I went there, she would look at me suspiciously. And I, I, I picked up on it. You get the vibes, you know. And I finally said, Barbara. Either we're doing this or we're not. I said, it's exhausting for me to have to gain, regain your trust every single time I come here. I said, you've agreed to do it. Let's just do it. You know, let's don't, don't, don't make me spend a half hour, you know, coddling you and making you feel like you like me so then we can keep going. Let's just do it. You know, let's be professional about it. And, you know, with Brando, it was like he only wanted to talk about Indians. So I talked to him about Indians. I prepared so much for it, but I knew I had to do other stuff with him, right? And he didn't want to do that. So the first six hours, only about Indians. The next day, we picked it up. More about Indians. The next day, picked it up. Well, by 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 the first, after eight or twelve hours, he you know he was a little tired of talking about Indians, and that was my strategy. <laughs> that was my strategy. <laughs> then I could throw in, you know, when you did on the waterfront, and you did that famous scene. So anybody could do that. That's a da 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 da. And then we, and then he's, oh, you got me, you got me talking about acting. And I'd go back to the Indians, and then. But, you know, an hour later, I'd throw in something else about Marilyn Monroe, and then he would talk, and then he would do the same thing again. That was what that was all about. So the, as far as continuity goes, um, I just try to, you know, basically, if I have 100 or 500 questions, I know where I've, I've, I've stopped. I know the, that night when I go home, I look over all these questions. I, I know what we've got to what we did, what was important still, what we, we should have covered when we did, which we didn't get to. I will circle that. I will highlight it if I need to, and then, you know, know where I want to pick it up. So it's, it's a lot of the research and, uh, and the work at night as well. After being with the person for a day, I will work on it at the evening. So when I go back the next morning, I am, you know, picking it up where we left off, but I'm adding to what we've already talked about as well. It sounds like there's a lot of, uh, or some aspect of gamesmanship that goes on when you're totally. interviewing these very powerful people where they say they want to be interviewed. And I remember in a, a reading about Harrison Ford, he really didn't give you too much, but he was very clever as to how he responded. And Steve Martin didn't want to talk about the past or the future yeah. or the present. <laughs> and he wasn't that funny until you got him going. So how do you manage the gains, gamesmanship? You have to be really, I guess it sounds like, Larry, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you prepare your questions, but then you have to go with the flow. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When I when I went to see Henry Moore, uh, you know, Henry Moore was the you know one of the greatest living artists at the time. He was in Forte de Marmi in Italy. I I went to his home in, 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 in much, much had him in England. I saw how he, he owned 11 of the 12 houses on, on that block. He was a very wealthy man from his sculpture. And, and then I go down there. I had, you know, I, I was really out of my league, I thought, you know, we're, we're dealing with a great artist, you know, because, you know, what do I know about sculpture? What do I know? You know, well, I studied in the States before I flew over there. I had prepared and prepared. And then I got uh, one of those notebooks that had that could flip upward. And I, I wrote my questions that I, I typed them up in a small, you know, small enough to, eight, you know, to, to fit that notebook. And I pasted them into, into my, the notebook. So I had all these questions like this. 
and, and I filled up that whole notebook with questions. I read those questions over and over and over again. I got to, you know, when I got to England and, and, and then I took a train down to Italy and I'm in the train, all I'm doing is reading the questions, reading the questions. Reading. And so by the time I got there, I get to his house. He's in his backyard. He's looking at a, at a, at a book of drawings, you know, and he's a small man, you know, and he was just an older man. And I said, uh, I said, Mr. Moore, pleasure to meet you. I said, what, what kind of, what, what are you looking at? He said, oh, I'm just looking at these drawings. He says, yeah, I says, I said, do you, you know, do you always look at art books? He says, you know, you can, you can tell great artists. The, if you really want to know who the great artists were, you could tell them by their drawings, not by their sculptures or paintings or anything. I said, really? I said, well, who are the great artists in your opinion? And, you know, it was Michelangelo, you know, it was Rembrandt, him, right? The, he gave me 10 artists, including himself. And I started, and I started going from there. Right? I never once opened my book, my notebook. I mean, I had studied it and studied it and studied it, right? But but uh, here we were, just having a conversation. And and then and and he told me to go to Carrar. He says, you know, that's where he got his marble, and it wasn't that far from Fort de Marme. So I I I went to the to the to the marble site, you know, where they were cutting up marbles. And that was amazing. And then I went back and I saw him again the next day, you know, and, and it was like. That can, that can happen when you're really well prepared. You may never use your questions. And, you know, when, when I finished with them, yeah, I looked over the questions I didn't get to, but it was okay because I got to also, I, I, everything we talked about was so fascinating, you know, and it, and it was on topic. You know, I wasn't telling him stories out of, you know, no, I was sticking to art and, and his, his art. And it was, it was fascinating. So, you know, again, preparation is really important, but, you know, you have to be able to go, you know, to listen because if you're listening and they they take off on a different subject you go with it the steve martin interview was really tricky because steve martin he's a kind of a genius you know i mean he like you look at him he was a great comedian very good writer good uh, actor actor good screenwriter you know, he's got a lot of uh, piano, you know the banjo he's a, he's a musician no, novelist but, and a novelist right but he is a terrible interview um <laughs> you know he's he's like he doesn't want to give you anything and and especially with a comedian, you know, when I was doing Robin Williams, or if you if you do uh, you know, what's in Mel Brooks, there are certain comedians who are very good. They're on, you know, not not Steve. Steve sat behind his desk, and it was like whoa, I, it was really difficult to do, and I couldn't get him out of the desk. I said, "Can you want to do this? Want to do that?" No, no, he just wanted to be do it there. And I've done three interviews with him, you know. So and I've had dinner with him. I've been to his house. I brought Joyce Carol Oates once to his house, uh, and, and David Mamet yeah. is there. You know, we had a very interesting, you know, uh, life uh, after after the interview. But doing the interview itself with Steve was really um, difficult. And I knew when I was editing it that I had to find whatever I could make funny, you know, whatever I could work on it. So I made it much much funnier in a way than 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 it was and his public his uh manager called me up and said you really you, you, you i can't believe you got this out of steve he says you know like you know i we, they really liked the interview why because well because it wasn't really what happened in the sense it was just just taking stuff from all over and trying to make it work you know don't forget they put play they put him on the cover of playboy wearing a diaper it was a it was the new year with two you know like bringing in the baby so he's willing to go visually very funny but you know, the verbally, it was it, it was always a struggle with them. What was some of the self discovery that you got from all these interviews with these very amazing, powerful, creative forces that you spoke to? Well, I you know I I think I, I learned that I I'm 
I can do these things. I learned that, uh, you know, you, you always, you, I don't think I'm as smart as Linus Pauling, who won two Nobel Prizes and, you know, in science, uh, or Richard Feynman, who won the Nobel Prize in physics. You know, I mean, these, I've been with some giants, Pavarotti, uh, you know, Capote or, Bre or, or, or Norman Mailer or, or Saul Bellow, who, you know, I adore his work. I'm not, I'm not intellectually on their level. But when I'm with them, I am, because uh, I'm prepared, and I have to think, I have to convince myself that I am, I am the equal to Linus Pauling, or I am the equal to Richard Feynman. And maybe when I come home, I go, <laughs> I pull that one off, right? Or with Brando. But I think it's the idea that that I have the confidence that I can do it. So I feel that I could talk to anybody, and and I may not succeed. I don't know. But I've, I've yet to, to meet my match in that regard. I'm, you know, I failed with Mitchum, but that was because he was a nasty guy, you know, and I walked out of it. I just, you know, why bother with something like that? But I can't think of other people that, you know, that uh, defeated me in a way. So I, I think it, I, I got a great deal of self-confidence from, from being able to do these things. And, and having, having editors that I respected asking me, I was like the first one. Playboy would always call me and say, you want to do so-and-so, you want to do so-and-so, you know? And so I knew that, you know, I had risen to a level where I could, you know, I could do that kind of stuff. So, you know, I guess that might be an answer. It is, and it all started with selling those encyclopedias. So don't knock, don't knock salespeople. It really That's teaches right. you a lot about humanity. Absolutely. Um, okay, Larry, we're running out of time here. Um, do you want to talk about your website? There's so much more I have, but let's, for right now, where, where can people find out more about you? Again, the seminal book is The Art of the Interview. I know you've got two books of short stories. You've got a whole bunch of other stuff out there. What do you want to tell us? Well, I, you know, I wrote another book, a sequel to The Art of the Interview, called You Talking to Me, which is 120 lessons that I learned from the people I've talked to. And I kind of, that's kind of been an interesting book as, for, for me. But I've, I, you know, I, I, I've written two novels, Catch a Fallen Star and Begin Again, Finnegan. And uh, and then I wrote these two books of short stories. One is called The Narcissist. The other is Schemers, Dreamers, Cheaters, Believers. And those that's those are 35 stories written during the pandemic. I'm writing another book of short stories because I've written 16 more since then. Um, but I've written uh, my memoir is You Show Me Yours. So I, I've just got a lot of I got 29 books. All okay. of them are available on at Amazon. All you do is go to Lawrence Grobel, my name, and, and you'll you, you can see all the books. You can click on any of those books and get the, read the first 10% of any of those books for free. You know, so you can you click on look inside, you'll see, oh, you want to continue? Then you get the book. If you don't, you've seen enough. Um, my website is my name, lawrencegrobel.com, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E-G-R-O-B-E-L.com. And all the books are shown there too. And you can click on there to get, get to those. And there's all sorts of other stuff there, all the the, the, my books have been translated into 14 languages, uh, including China and Japanese and, you know, uh, uh, Croatia. I mean, it's pretty some of the uh, interesting in different places. So and, and you can see all the different covers on the books and all. I put those up in the website. So that's about as much promotion, I guess. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. I, I do Twitter, uh, you know, I, but I don't I don't do as much social media as I probably should. But, you know. And I have an article coming up in AARP in June oh, fantastic. about my relationship with my grandson, who is only five and a half. 
and uh, he's a, he's turned out to be quite a prodigy as an artist. And so um, uh, I, I wrote a, they asked me to write about that. And I, I, I did that recently. Fantastic. Well, Lawrence Grobel, thank you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. You're a guys guy and you're really an inspiration. So thank you. Thank you. It's Guys Guy Radio. What a fantastic conversation with the GOAT himself, the world's greatest interviewer, Lawrence Grobel, and your guys guy, Robert Manny. It was a blast. So what did we learn? I think we learned a lot about interviewing from Lawrence. But if I could sum it up in three bullet points, it would be, number one, to be successful as an interviewer, you've got to be prepared. And that's pretty obvious. Uh, number two, you've got to have the confidence and develop the confidence to be able to speak with anybody, anytime, anywhere. And number three, you've got to be a good listener and be adaptable because you might have all your questions prepared for an interview, but the guest might say something and you really have to listen. And there might be some opportunities to follow up and take the interview in a direction you might have not expected, but it could open up a lot of areas that are interesting for your listeners, viewers, readers, whatever. So Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific Time, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 a.m. The podcast on my YouTube drop every Thursday, a rebroadcast of the uh, radio show on KCAA, broadcast every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. So we're all over the place. You can catch us pretty much anywhere where you consume podcasts, YouTube, or, or radio. Uh, my website is robertmanny.com, M-A-N-N-I.com. You can catch my videos there, over 300 blog posts about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. And you can also download three free chapters of my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, about two dudes in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money in the market and city where they play for keeps. New York City, it's a rom-com. It's been called The Male Successor to Sex in the City. It's a lot of fun, but it's about something. So great show today. Very excited about the upcoming shows we have. We're booked into May and we've got fantastic guests. And as I mentioned, Lawrence Grobel is going to come back for part two in two weeks. And we're going to really drill deep into the art of interviewing. He's going to interview me. We're going to do a little critique of how I did for the first interview and just put it out there for everybody. So you want to be podcasters out there, can pick up some points. And also just in general, we can learn about how we best communicate with each other. So guys, guys, radio, as always, I'm here for for you. I'm here to serve. I, I go out and get the guests I think can add some value and some entertainment and I learn from them and hopefully you've learned from them also. So we're going to be back next week with a couple of other guests. And until then, like I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. Finish first.